We pray that you would help us. We pray that uh, this word would dig deep within us, that it would grant to us faith. I resonate with the cry of the apostles when they said to our Lord Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Would you please uh, do that this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. Turn to Hebrews, please, in chapter 11. Hebrews in chapter 11. I want to read the first uh, two verses and then verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hear the word of God. Hebrews 11.1 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received, received their commendation. And then verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them." Since we've entered into Hebrews chapter 11 some time ago, we've been asking the question, what does it really mean to live by faith? What does it mean to live by faith? Um, that's a very important question. Uh, Romans 5 uh, verse 1 says, uh, now, we have been, now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, our justification is based upon our faith. In Christ, certainly it needs the work of Christ. The work of Christ underlies it. It's the very foundation, the very ground of it. But we enter, we receive this justification by faith. And it's very important that we understand what that means. Check yourself right now. If, if you don't know what that means, just say, I don't know what that means. Say, say it to yourself. So, you know. but, but if you don't know what that means, that you've been justified by faith, then it means you don't understand Christianity. Right? It's the very, very ground of it all. Being justified by faith. To be justified means that God declares you right with him or righteous in his sight. It's a de declaration that God makes of us. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something, that, something that's inherently true of us. Because to be righteous in God's sight inherently would mean that we were without sin within ourselves, but we know that we sin. And so this declaration that he makes is based upon Christ. It's based upon the work of Christ. Christ lived for us perfectly, obeyed for us, so that his righteousness could be ours. When he died, he took the penalty for our sin so that our sin would be forgiven. So when we believe in him, when we trust in Jesus then we're, we're identified with Jesus so that God looks upon us and declares us righteous because he's seeing us in his Son. 
He's seeing us in Christ. He's recognizing that we belong to Jesus. I hope that makes sense to you, because that's the very guts of it all, that we're justified by faith. And faith isn't a work that we do in order for God to look upon us and say, yes, I will accept you. That is, God doesn't say, here's my law. I know you can't do that. So I won't require that of you. But what I will require of you is faith, because you can do that. It isn't a work. Faith isn't a work like that. Faith is sort of like our hands are to our body. They receive that which is given. Faith is kind of like the ears to us. They're instruments of hearing. They don't earn anything. They're just there. They just take it in. So they receive it. They're instruments of hearing. Faith is like our mouths that receive food and chew it up, you see. It's, just the, it's, the, it's the means by which, it's the instrument through which the gifts of God come to us. It's not that God suspends his law and only requires faith. Faith is simply the instrument by which we receive what Christ has done. It's a turning away from ourselves, from everything in ourselves, and trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And not only are we justified by faith, but we're to live by faith. The scripture says that the righteous, that is, those who have been declared justify those who have been accepted by God on the basis of Christ, the righteous will then live by faith. We not only enter into this relationship with God by way of faith, but we live on the basis of faith. Faith in Christ then informs everything, every decision that we make, it should, every thought that we think, everything that we do, every word that we speak, should be informed by, captivated by, faith. And so we're to live by faith. So it's very important, obviously, that we understand what faith is. So the author of Hebrews now gets to this point in his message, and he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. All right? So when we're we're living by faith, it means that we're certain that what God has promised us, that is, what we hope for, uh, will come. It's, it's, we live in the assurance of it. And we're convinced that that which we do not presently see, we one day will. So on the basis of our justification by faith, what we're saying is, we've never seen Jesus. We didn't see the transaction that took place between Jesus and the Father when he died for our sins and, and all of that. Yet we believe in him. We trust in him. We believe everything that the Bible says is true about him really is true. And thus we live in the assurance of sins forgiven. We live in the assurance that a day will come when we'll see all that he's promised to us. Right now, I don't see uh, a perfectly uh, a person in me who's perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. But I live trusting that I've been born of the Spirit and that that day will come. And thus, when I have decisions to make, I'm to make them based on faith, trusting the Spirit of God in me, leading me in all of that, And that he will help me. And in each decision and each time, I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. And one day, I'll see that in its fruition. When I look in the earth, I don't see the new earth. When I look into the heavens, I don't see the new heavens. I don't see everything out there reflecting the the image of Christ, the glory of God. But one day, I'll see it. And I live with that hope, with that assurance that that's going to take place. And so we're justified by faith. We live 
by faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for. All that God has promised will be true and will come true and we'll see it. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And so then, quite helpfully, the author of Hebrews says, well, what do you think that looks like? And then he begins to show us what it looks like. He says, it looks like Abel when you're coming to worship and the sacrifice of praise that you bring. You understand that when you come to God, you come on the basis of blood. You come on the basis of the life of another, not on your own. It means that when you walk with him, you're to please him. So you walk by faith as Enoch did. It means that you obey as Noah did, that even though the the rains weren't going to come for some time and the flood wasn't going to come for some time, Noah organized his whole life around that commandment of God. And he was proactive and he moved out and he began to build the ark even before. So faith obeys the very word of God. Faith is, is, is like it was with Abraham when he was called. That, that faith then grew out of that calling that he received. And, and Abraham was called to leave his whole pre-faith life, you, if you will, and follow after God. Even going to a place where he didn't know where he was going. And once he got there, he lived as an alien and a stranger there, looking beyond what he could see with his eyes, saying, No, I know God has promised me a city with foundations, a city that he's built, a city where he is the, the author and architect and all of that. And so, so, so I can live here, but my eyes are that way. My eyes are on that hope. And, and he lived in such a way that even though he was old and, and his wife was beyond childbearing years that since God had promised them a child, he, he lived knowing that that would take place and it did that she would conceive a child. And even when he was asked to sacrifice that very child of promise, he, he reasoned from faith thinking God must be going to raise him from the dead if he's necessary to continue on the promises of God. That's what faith looks like, you see. And now we come to this man, Moses. I suppose you know his story. Movies have been made uh, about Moses. Uh, Cartoons have been made about Moses. All kinds of things about Moses. I trust you've read the Bible to know what the real story is about Moses. Some of them don't get it quite right. But uh, what the real story is about Moses, uh, you remember uh, that the Israelites found themselves in Egypt because there had been a famine in their land. And so Jacob took the sons that were with him and moved to Egypt. And it just so happened, providentially, that his one son, Joseph, was head of the famine relief effort. And so Jacob and his family received quite good treatment from Joseph. After a while, because of the fact that they were prosperous, uh, not only financially but in, and materially, but in terms of the numbers of Israelites, um, the king of Egypt became, became afraid of the Israelites, thinking they've gotten so numerous that if ever our enemies attack us, if the Israelites would side with our enemies, then we'd be defeated. And so he said, somehow we have to control them. So he enslaved them. Uh, and in his enslaving of them, that didn't work. They, they multiplied even more, it seems. And so he said, somehow we've got to put a stop to this. So he commanded the midwives, talking to the two key midwives, it seems, and then all of that to go on through, saying, whenever a male child is born, whenever there is an infant baby boy, I want you to kill him and only let the girls live. live. Well, of course... These midwives couldn't do that. They couldn't disobey God, dishonor God. They knew his, the value that God placed on life. They would know that you're not to take the life of another. And so they refused, telling the king, 
probably fairly truthfully that the Hebrew women were so healthy that they gave birth way before the, uh, uh, the midwives got there. And so they were not needed often. And so these children grew. And so the king then changed his orders and said, all right, since you won't do that, then anyone who hears of or sees an infant boy born to Israel I want you to take that infant child and throw him in the river so that he would drown and be dead. But again, ah, it didn't work always. It did some. There was a great holocaust. But there was this one child born and his parents looked upon him and saw that he was beautiful. Now the scripture says it's a difficult thing to translate. He was beautiful, he was healthy, he was no ordinary child, the way the New International Version puts it. They, they knew there was something about, about this young boy, Moses. And so they kept him, they hid him. The scripture says, by faith. And the irony here is so wonderful, isn't it? Because they, they hid him by faith for three months. And then if you track with the rest of the story, with Moses, you know, when he became three months, it appears that he was too big to hide. And so parents made this little basket and they put him in the river, the very river that was probably supposed to kill him, became the source of life to him. So he began to float right there amongst the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter uh, noticed that, that, uh, that this little baby was there. She desired to keep him. But when they put Moses out on the river in the little basket, they sent with him as a guardian to watch from afar his sister. When his sister saw that the servants of Pharaoh's daughter had gotten the little boy and taken him to Pharaoh's daughter, she ran up and said, would you like me to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse him? And of course, that wouldn't be an unusual thing because there would have been Hebrew women ready to nurse because their little boys perhaps had been killed. And so Pharaoh's daughter said, sure. And so... Moses' sister went to get their mom. And so she came and nursed Moses for we don't know how long until he was weaned. The providential irony of all of that is not only did now she have the protection for her child, she had the protection of Pharaoh himself. And she got paid for it, which I think is the beginning of the plundering of the Egyptians. Uh, now we're pay paying moms in Israel to nurse their own, their own children. But the scripture says, of course, it was by faith that they did that. Now the question then is, is, what's this teach us about faith? Just the faith of Moses' parents. What does this teach us uh, about faith? That they were the very ones that by faith they would, they would do this. They would hide him. And they said it, it wasn't out of fear. It wasn't out of fear of the king's edict. Now that's a very interesting thing. Because in one sense it was. I mean, they wouldn't have had to hide him if they weren't afraid that if they didn't, Moses would be killed. But what they weren't afraid of was the, the implicit threat. The implicit threat is if you do know of a little baby boy that's born to the Israelites and you don't throw him in the river, then perhaps we'll throw you into the river. Perhaps it will be the demise of you that you'll be in trouble with Pharaoh. And that's what they didn't fear. They didn't fear any repercussions upon themselves. And so they, they were able to hide him because they weren't afraid of what the king said. They feared they feared God. And the question is, so how do you do that? Well, if you'll notice in chapter 11 and verse 27, we have a similar expression about Moses himself. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, the, the way Moses could live without fear, even though the king wanted to kill him at that point, and he knew it, the reason that he could live without fear is because he saw beyond the king, and he saw he lived as seeing him who is invisible. That is, he lived as one who could see God. Now, God is invisible. We can't see him. So what's he mean? He means by faith, he knew without question that God was present. He knew without question that God Almighty was right here. He knew without question that God Almighty was for him. Thus, no doubt, he could say uh, with the psalmist in Psalm 27, uh, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I mean, if God is going to save me, if God is going to be my light, then of whom should I really be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If he's going to keep me, if he's going to help me, why should I fear anyone at all? Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and, fo- and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He had every expectation that ultimately the ones who were after him would stumble and fall, that he wouldn't. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, listen, I'm living as one in the very temple of God who's gazing upon him as seeing him who is invisible. That's the very posture of my life. That's the focal point of my life. It's God. I'm seeing through all of this. I'm seeing past all of this. And what I'm seeing is that God is here. So why, therefore, should I be afraid? If I can inquire of him, why should I be afraid? John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was once asked how he could so confidently stand before a queen who was known as Bloody Mary. And he said, well, once you've been on your knees before the king of kings, you feel no queen of Scotland. Remember Jehoshaphat, great king of Judah. There were enemies encamped on every corner around him. He was completely surrounded, completely outnumbered. All he had was a small army at best. Mostly women and children were with him at the time. And, 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 and so the scripture says very accurately, very helpfully, says, and Jehoshaphat was afraid. But then it's the next phrase that we need to camp on, and that is, Jehoshaphat was afraid, so he turned and sought the Lord. And so what he did was he called a fast for all of the people there with him, and they were all to seek the Lord together. And in the seeking of the Lord, he was able to say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In other words, it isn't that he could see God visually, but he knew that God was right there. And he could see all those enemies, but rather than look at those enemies and try to find God, he looked at God and then saw his enemies in proportion to, in relation to God. And then, I think... If you would have bumped into the Apostle Paul, Paul would have said, if God is for you, who can be against you? And Jehoshaphat would have said, yes. If he was Baptist, he would have said, amen. Right? He said, that's true. That's really right. If God is for me, who can be against me? And so you get the sense 
that Moses' parents, like Moses later, didn't need to be afraid, weren't afraid. Now, frankly, it's impossible, I think, for any parent to hear the word that the king's out to kill your infant without having a bit of fear rush over you. Apprehension. I mean, just to think, but then you see, the point is to turn from that fear in faith to see he who is invisible and say, yes, but he who is invisible is with me. The very God Almighty. And you see, in faith then we find fear dissipating. In faith then we find fear leaving. And that's the very thing here. But notice, and I won't dwell on this at all, two small points about Moses' parents' faith. Small points because I don't think that's the main point of the author of Hebrews, but I just want to mention them. Number one is that their faith uh, still enabled them to take very practical steps to keep Moses safe. You might say, well, if they really weren't afraid of, of the king, why didn't they just raise Moses out in the open? Because if they raised Moses out in the open, the king would see him and kill him. And so it was their faith then that led them to take the personal risk to say, we'll hide him. The reasonable thing. And then even when he got too big to hide, what are we going to do? Well, they could raise him out in the open again. But in faith, they would put him in this little basket and, and, and pray and trust that God would care for him there somehow to find someone to raise him. Perhaps quietly, perhaps they knew that Pharaoh's daughter was there. Perhaps they knew that she wanted a child. Who knows any of that? But they put him there in faith, trusting. It's sort of the same as if God calls you to go live in the inner city to do ministry there. And you do that by faith, and perhaps it's a very dangerous neighborhood. It doesn't mean that it's a lack of faith to install deadbolts on your door. It doesn't mean that it's a lack of faith to, to, to walk in the light and not when it's dark, or to have your phone with you ready to go on 911 if anything bad would happen. I mean, that's living in faith. That's fine. If you're called to work with people with AIDS or something that very infectious diseases, it's not a lack of faith to wear protective gloves. That's not a lack of faith. That's, that's wisdom that comes by faith because that will prolong your life and enable you to carry out this work even longer. And so here they were doing the very practical things. And then I just think, just let me slip this in. This is completely an aside. It's just for parents. Raise your kids by faith. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the world out there. God is with you. God will lead you. God will help you. Don't be afraid of that. Don't make decisions based upon fear. All kinds of decisions. When the kids are little, who they're going to play with, and what sports are they going to be in, if any, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then you have the great fears of what are all the other parents going to think of me when I make this decision or that decision or do it this way or do it that way. Flush all of that. Live by faith. Seek the Lord. Counsel with Him. Trust Him. And He'll be with you. Now that's a whole other talk on... I was thinking today I should put together a talk called Raising Your Children by Faith Without Floating Them Down the River. I don't know why that came to mind. But... but um, uh, that's for another time. But, but just plant that in you, if you will, just on the basis of all of this. But you see, living by faith means we needn't fear. 
Because God is, in fact, with us. Psalm 46, which was my call to worship, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That psalm begins by saying, the Lord is my refuge and my strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the seas roar and the mountains fall into the sea. When the seas start to roar like that, we're talking tsunami. When the mountains fall into the sea, we're talking problems, right? I mean, think about the Rocky Mountains ending up in the Pacific, or worse, the Atlantic, which means they'd have to go over us, right? That's a problem. But he says, be still. When that's happening, that's a kind of a big figurative kind of a notion for all the things that can happen in our lives. He said, when that's happening, when that kind of thing's happening, the way that you're going to respond to that is to relax. The New American Standard Bible has it. Relax. Be still. Why? God says, I'm going to be exalted. You see, the thing that makes us most afraid in times like that is we think nobody's in charge of this. It's just random. Stuff's just happening. Just everything's falling apart around us and, and there's no control and there's no stopping this and, 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 and all of that. But God says, no, that isn't true. I will be exalted. And when I'm exalted, when you see me through all this, you realize that I'm your fortress. So just be still. Just be still. Now you know how this moves. As I said, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and, and, and gives him back, in a sense, to Moses' mom to, to nurse him. She keeps him, no doubt, till he's weaned. We don't know really then what happens after that, except that he seems to go back and be raised in the palace. Uh, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he's giving his sermon that gets him killed, uh, talks about Moses and said that he grew in the wisdom of, of Egypt. So he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But then you might remember an incident that takes place when Moses is 40 years old. So think of that. He's not a young man, really. 40 years old. Uh, And he sees a slave master, an Egyptian slave master, beating a Hebrew slave. You picture this. I suspect Moses looked a great deal at that point in time like an Egyptian. Would have dressed like an Egyptian had his hair cut like an Egyptian, looked like an Egyptian. In fact, I say that because when he fled later on to Midian and, was, and came across some people there, um, Jethro's daughter ran to her father and said, an Egyptian is here. And he said, why are you taking, what are you talking to this Egyptian for? So he would have looked just like an Egyptian. And not just like any old Egyptian. He would have looked like a very rich Egyptian. All right? Um, he would have looked like the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He would look like a prince. So take all of that in. And he sees this taking place. And if you didn't know anything else and you looked at that situation, you would think that he'd be rooting for the Egyptian slave master at that point in time because it's by the work in the backs of these Hebrew slaves that Moses has what he has, the palace and all of that. But he doesn't. He looks around. He sees no one. And so then he kills that Egyptian slave master. And he buries him in the sand because he doesn't want anyone to find out that he's done that. Next day or thereabouts, he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other, one sort of beating up on another. So he turns to the one who's beating up on the other and he says, why are you doing this to your brother? 
And the one who's beating up the other turns to Moses and says, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me just like you killed that Egyptian? And at that point in time, Moses realized, the word's out. It's at least out among the Hebrews. It'll get out ultimately to the Egyptians. In fact, we find out that the king finds out about that and is after Moses to kill him. And so then Moses flees. Interestingly, that particular passage says Moses was afraid. And then he fled. But the author of Hebrews wants us to know that he didn't flee ultimately out of fear. He dealt with that. But he fled to endure. He fled to preserve his life. You get the sense that he knew that a day would be that he would be coming back to be the very one that he would be the deliverer of his people. But notice how the author of Hebrews puts it in verse 24. He says, By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. All of this by faith. There's a redundancy in this chapter that I hope you are seeing. The redundancy in this chapter is that when we live by faith, it means that we're able to think and reason by faith. And when we think and reason by faith, there's a calculation that takes place by faith. And when that calculation takes place by faith, we're able to leave behind everything that isn't related to Christ, that isn't related to God. We leave all of that behind and follow after Him. We saw it most especially in Abraham when he was about when he had been called to to sacrifice his son, he said he considered, that is, he reasoned, he thought, he made a calculation. And he made a calculation in his mind to say, "If, if Isaac is important to the fulfilling of the promises of God, then surely God will then raise him from the dead. How else could it be? And now Moses makes a calculation. He, he takes a look at everything that he has. And please don't minimize this calculation. Don't think it a small thing. Moses was wealthier and had higher status and was more prominent and had everything he wanted to the degree like you and I could never imagine but somewhere in us would love to have. Right? See, at the best, if, if, if you were in our day, you would have had the best education, whatever you can imagine that to be. So much so that when he said he graduated from wherever, people would just be amazed at him and he'd have a ticket into all the best places. So much so that when you looked at him, the way that he was dressed, you would say, that's the finest, whatever it is he had on, that's the finest that there is. And he had a whole closet full of that. When he drove up, you would say, that's the car that in my wildest dreams I would love to have. And he'd say, I have six. Plus some others. If you went by his place, you would say, that looks like a palace. Because it was. Uh, and he, he would live there. Whatever was the finest of whatever could be had in those days, Moses had. Now his choice then was, I can live like this with all the status and all the prestige and all the stuff and all of that, or I could go to the worst imaginable part of the worst city in whatever part of the world would be the worst, and I could live with those people. 
That was his calculation. This or that. Which is better? And by faith, he made a calculation. And he says, going to add up all I have as Pharaoh's son. As the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Add all that up. What all that's worth. Add up what's worth over here to be identified with this group of people. And by faith, he said, I'd rather be identified with the people of God. That was his calculation. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, it isn't so much that having all this stuff in and of itself was sin. Joseph, it appeared, had quite a bit. Joseph, who predated him, didn't seem to leave his relationship with royalty because it was a different context, a different time, a different calling, a different place for him to be. The people of Israel were being well-treated because of Joseph's position. However, in Moses' day, it was quite different. For Joseph to identify with the people of God was very different than for, for Moses to identify with the people of God. And so that would have just been the pleasures of, of sin for Moses to ignore his people and ignore his calling. And it would be just fleeting pleasure. Don't you know, it's so ironic that if Moses had not made the choice that he did and stayed in the palace... No one would probably ever know him. He'd be completely forgotten in history. List the pharaohs of Egypt. Everybody knows Moses. That's how I did it. But think about it. So here he is making that calculation. He's saying, he's saying, I'd rather, not only am I going to give up all this stuff and go live as a slave, but I'm going to live as a slave, and that means I'm going to be mistreated. He was well treated before, but now he's going to be mistreated. He's going to suffer along with him. In fact, so much so, and we'll talk about this later. I don't have time today. Talk about this in a couple of weeks. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, he was looking past all of that and he was looking uh, to this reward. I was thinking, what, that, what would that look like in the context of our lives for us to make those kinds of calculations? And I asked myself the question the other day when I was making this list. I said, does my, does my life add up? I mean, you know, if, if you make the calculation, does my life add up? Does, do our lives add up? And I was just thinking about the lives of people that I've known and the calculations that they've, that they've made and came up with this list of calculations by faith. The calculation, for instance, to remain unmarried rather than to compromise moral standards, either to marry an unbeliever or to be sexually active before marriage. You know, loneliness sets in. What's that mean? What would marriage be like? Make the calculation. But, but, but not to compromise. That which is godly. The calculation to stay in a marriage is difficult rather than to bail. The calculation to sacrifice a particular pleasure in life and to serve another, be it by way of a visit or a call to someone to give money to help another, to give a full tithe to the church. The calculation that holding my tongue is better than defending myself or losing my temper. That's a hard calculation sometimes, isn't it? I can say this. That's worth a hundred right off the bat. If I don't say it, 
okay, 102, right? You make that calculation. Calculation that taking the hurt and forgiving is better than bitterness and revenge. The calculation that sharing my faith is better than not at all, even if it means I may be ridiculed or lose a friend. The calculation that being alone or hanging out with those who are not popular is better than being with the popular kids and doing stuff that will dishonor God in my testimony. The calculation of a wife to submit to her husband, even though the other women in the office think it's archaic. The calculation to say no to a promotion if it would require disrupting the family in ways that will hurt the spiritual growth of the children. The calculation to remain celibate rather than to pursue sexual intimacy outside of marriage. The calculation to miss the latest movies if they have scenes that are dishonoring to God or that would cause you to sin. The calculation to not have cable if it means that you will watch what you shouldn't. The calculation to forgo having the internet if that means you'll go to sites that will cause you to sin. The calculation to have a smaller house if it means that you'll be able to give more to those in need. The calculation to sell it all and to go into missions and risk everything. What kind of calculations have you made? What kind of calculations are you called to make in the context of your own life, you see? And we need to make them by faith at seeing him who is invisible and knowing the worth and the value of that. We understand that as believers, we, we live in a fairly nice time. I mean, let's face it. We live in a fairly easy time to be Christians. But the truth of the matter is when all the cards are laid on the table, when people really know us, and when, when push comes to shove in various issues in various times, and our Christianity comes to the fore, we understand that we have to make a calculation because those around us will misunderstand us. Those around us may not even like us at the end of the day. They may call us, call us narrow-minded because we continue to press the fact that there's only salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And when that's known, people can turn against us and think that we're simply narrow-minded. They may think that we're, we're bigoted because we believe that marriage is only an option for a man and a woman, a monogamous heterosexual relationship for life. And that's the only way. They may think we're bigoted. They may think we're sexually repressed because we think sex outside of a heterosexual marriage is immoral, is wrong. They may think that we're anti-women because we don't believe that a woman has the right to abort a child. Uh, we, they may think that we're financially foolish because we give so much money away. We give so much money to the church. They may think that we're socially irresponsible because, in fact, we don't think we're better than anybody else. We walk into a room and we don't think because of our education or because of our money or because of the part of town we live in or because of our looks that we're better than anybody else in that room and that we simply won't use that to our advantage. And they think we're socially irresponsible to live like that. That we're crazy and they think we're judgmental for all kinds of reasons. It happens to us. And that calculation is just happening in our heads. Are we going to follow Christ or not? Are we going to be afraid of them or not? How are we going to live? By following after Christ. By following after the world. We see these calculations in Scripture all over the place. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, verse... Middle of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, I had everything. Spiritually, socially, economically, educationally, I had everything. Verse 
7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may gain, attain the resurrection of the dead. He said, listen, if there is anything in me that's keeping me from really knowing Christ, then it's not worth having. Period. That's his calculation. On another occasion, he made this kind of calculation, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing, us, uh, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He said, no matter what I'm suffering, the loss of at the moment, I can do that because it's worth it. Because I know under God, this is preparing an eternal weight of glory. In other words, there's nothing weightier than this. There's nothing bigger than this. There's nothing more valuable than that. Therefore, it's worth it. And therefore, he goes on to say, uh, we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, all I'm losing is stuff that I won't have for most of eternity anyway. Because as soon as I leave here, they're gone. In fact, most of these things pre-leave us. Right? They leave us way before we leave them. Most of those things that we value. And if we don't, someone will take them from us eventually. Even my car keys, I'm sure. Romans 8, verse 18. For I, considering the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed uh, to us. Uh, our Lord Jesus in Matthew and uh, chapter 6 put it like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where, earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Moses said. I'm going to identify with his people. I'm going to identify with God. What it means is I'm going to have to leave everything in the palace. I'm going to have to leave everything that's associated with attached to being Pharaoh's adopted son. He did a calculation and he said, in a sense, I think, I'm giving up absolutely nothing in comparison with identifying with the people of God. J.C. Ryle, 19th century uh, Anglican bishop, wrote about this. He made three points I think I have time to read to you. First point, he said, was this, that Christians, therefore, on the basis of faith, learning from Moses, must always choose God over the world. And then he put it like this, very pointedly. Now, are you making any sacrifices? Does your faith cost you anything? He says, I put it to your conscience in all affection and tenderness. Are you, like Moses, preferring God to the world or not? I beseech you not to take shelter under that dangerous word, we. We ought, we hope, we mean. 
I ask you plainly, what are you doing yourself? Are you willing to give up anything which keeps you back from God? Or are you clinging to the Egypt of the world and saying to yourself, I must have it, I must have it, I cannot tear myself away. Is there any cross in your Christianity? Are there any sharp corners in your religion? Anything that even jars or comes in collision with the earthly mindedness around you? Or is all smooth and rounded off and comfortably fitted into custom and fashion? Do you know anything of the afflictions of the gospel? Is your faith and practice ever a subject of scorn and reproach? Are you thought a fool by anyone because of your soul? Have you left Pharaoh's daughter and hardly joined the people of God? Are you venturing all on Christ? Search and see. People always ask me, Bill, why do you quote these old dead guys? I say, for two reasons. One, because I don't think I'm mature enough to say that to you. And two, even if I were, I'd rather they take the hit. His second point. He says, nothing will ever enable you to choose God before the world except faith. So there must be a heartfelt belief that God's promises are sure and are to be depended upon. A real belief that what God says in the Bible is true and that every doctrine contrary to this is false. Whatever anyone may say, there must be real belief that God's words are to be received, however hard and disagreeable to flesh and blood, and that his way is right and all other ways wrong. There must be or you will never come out of the world. Take up the cross, follow Christ be saved. You must learn to believe promises better than possessions. Things unseen better than things seen. Things in heaven out of sight better than things on earth before your eyes. The praise of the invisible God better than the praise of visible man. Then and only then will you make a choice like Moses and prefer God to the world. And finally he makes this point. That the secret of doing great things for God is to have great faith. He says you read the lives of eminent Christians and you're disposed to say what wonderful gifts and graces these men had. He said, I would answer you, you should rather give honor to the mother grace which God puts forward in the 11th chapter of the epistle of Hebrews, their faith. It's called faith the mother grace. He says, I can fancy someone saying, they were so prayerful. That made them what they were. And I answer, why did they pray much? Simply because they had much faith. What is prayer but faith speaking to God? Another perhaps will say they were so diligent and laborious. What accounts for their, that accounts for their success. I answer, why were they so diligent? Simply because they had faith. What is Christian diligence but faith at work? Another will tell me they were so bold that rendered them so useful. I answer, why were they so bold? Simply because they had much faith. What is, a Christ, what is Christian boldness but faith honestly doing its duty? Another will cry, it was their holiness and spirituality that gave them their weight. For the last time I answer, what made them holy? Nothing but a living, realizing spirit of faith. What is holiness but faith visible and faith incarnate? And thus he goes on to say, that we must, with the apostles of Jesus, Go to him and simply say, no, not simply say, plead with him to increase our faith. And what better place to do that than right here at this table? You might remember that it was on the night that our Lord Jesus 
was betrayed and meeting with his disciples, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, again, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And thus, you see, when we come to this table, we remember Jesus, we meet with him here. And what strikes us as we come to this table is all that he's done for us and the reward that we have in him. I see the reward of the blessing that we have in him is first and foremost forgiveness of sins. What's that worth? What would you trade for forgiveness of sins. What do you have that you would rather cling to than forgiveness of sins? I hope nothing. And he says, in me you have forgiveness of sins. Wouldn't leaving Pharaoh's house be worth it? To be accepted by God? To leave that place of status and power and receive the affirmation, the blessing of God? And when we think of this, we realize that he's died for us and risen for us. Therefore, he intercedes for us. What's that worth? To know that Christ lives to make intercession, to watch and to pray and to provide all that we need. What's that worth? And not only that, he says, listen, as I intercede for you, I'm for you. Therefore, if I'm for you, who can be against you? What's that worth? Who would you rather have be your advocate? Most especially be your advocate before, in front of the only one who matters. God himself. The Lord Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can just kill you. Be afraid of the one who can send your body and soul to hell. And Jesus said, I'll talk to him for you. That very one. That one who can do that, I'll talk to him on your behalf. And I'll say, you're forgiven. I'll say, you have my righteousness. I'll say, what's that worth to us? And then to realize that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What's that worth? To know him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the answer is clear. It's worth everything. I pray for me, for us. And we'd know that and hold nothing tightly other than clinging to Christ and Christ alone with all our might. So I pray that in these moments you'd set apart this bread, this juice in such a way that will enable us to feed upon Christ, to know Him so that our faith would increase so that we'll be able to make the right calculations at the right times to follow after him by faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy and receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel meaning. 
that you understand that living in Pharaoh's house is not your salvation. Having all the things of the world is not your salvation. Being able and competent in everything is not your salvation. But it's casting all of that aside, turning away from all of that, and trusting in Christ and all that he is and all that he did. And it's your heart's desire then to follow after him. If that's true of you, please come. I invite these two sections to come down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and ask the Lord to increase your faith. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven, I pray that you would grant to us all the grace that is signified in the meal in which we've just taken, that we would know Christ and know the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings. Father, I pray for each of us in making calculations of worth and that we would always value Christ and knowing him and that that would carry the day in every, in every thought, every action, every word that we speak. Father, we pray, uh, especially this morning, to give you thanks for uh, granting grace to the Flory family that Susanna is home. And we pray that uh, you would continue to uh, bless that child, that she would grow strong. Uh, we thank you that Lita White uh, appears to be coming home this weekend, this next week. We thank you for that. We pray for her and for Wilbur as they make this transition that you would grant them grace and trust to trust in you and to see him who is invisible and not be afraid. Uh, Father, we pray for so many in our congregation with sick children and so forth that you would sustain moms and dads, uh, enable them to be strong, to uh, see this season of life through. For those in missions this morning, especially for Al Nagan and his team going to Mendenhall, Mississippi, I pray continued travel today that you would bless their travel, their conversations, their fellowship, and most especially that you would enable them to be productive once they arrive, to be loving and gracious and kind, and that there are many there in that place that would turn and, Father, give you thanks for their having come. Father, be with us, I pray. Bless us in all that we do that Christ may be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. The response to our benediction this morning will be to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye.